Welcome back to Misdiagnosed. We're gonna jump right into it. This is the final installment of a series we're doing on the chapter in Brain Saver by Anthony William, the medical medium, called Your Viral Brain. And if you haven't listened to part one and two in the series, you're gonna wanna listen to that because while this part is quite exciting, it's gonna mean a whole lot more and make a lot more sense if you listen to the first parts, part one and two. We're gonna be talking about what viruses love to eat. And we learned in the last two episodes that the ups and downs of brain inflammation come from viral fuel, right? These not these neurotoxins, this virus poop, yeah, for lack of a better term, ends up in our bloodstream and does all kinds of stuff to our brains and the nerves in our entire body. Our nervous system can be inflamed in many ways by the neurotoxins. And in order for these viruses to excrete, <laughs> for a better term, I guess, these neurotoxins, they need fuel. Viruses do eat. That's a review from the first part of this series. Viruses do eat. They take in food through their cell walls and they are alive, even though many of us have been told that viruses are not alive. But how can viruses grow? Ask yourself. Logically, how can viruses grow if they don't have any fuel? And how can something that needs fuel to grow not be alive? It just doesn't make any sense, does it? So we're turning on the light about viral fuel in this episode. The more of the favorite foods that a virus has to use for fuel, the more it thrives and the worse our symptoms get. So this is a super, super important episode to listen to. And there's a bright side and that's great motivation for those of us who may be struggling with weight issues as I have over the years, just the yo-yo effect removing foods and toxins that viruses love to eat from our brains and bodies, we can starve the viruses that have been wreaking so much havoc with our health. And there's different levels of viral brain inflammation. As Anthony mentioned in the book, one factor that influences the level of inflammation is how aggressive the virus is. The more aggressive the virus is, the more potent the neurotoxin it can poop out, you know. The stage of the virus matters too. And I learned this in the thyroid healing book, which I believe is the third book in the series that Medical Medium has done, that there's four stages to Epstein-Barr virus. So if it's in a dormant or early stage of infection, then the virus will cause less inflammation than when the virus is in a more advanced stage. So where it's built up a greater number of those active cells in the body over time, right? The more cells there are, the more viral cells there are, the greater quantity of neurotoxins they will create in your body. And then there's viral fuel. What level of brain inflammation we might experience is determined largely by what the virus is finding inside the body to feed on and fuel itself. And that's true whether it's an aggressive viral strain or more moderate to mild viral strain. So we're gonna go over some of the most common virus feeding foods and how they cause a virus and its symptoms to progress and get worse. These are by no means all of the fuel sources, but the most common ones. The first one is gluten. And I was in denial for so long that gluten was a trigger or gluten was bad. I thought it was just marketing, right? And largely it can be depending because people say oh gluten is just bad for you you know but there's so much more to it than that so it's a favorite food of viruses and here's what happens when a virus feeds on gluten the virus can grow and create more viral cells but gluten itself is not toxic that's why you can eat gluten sometimes and not experience any symptoms. There's plenty of people that don't have any problem with gluten. And that's because the viruses they have may not have left dormancy and begun to feed on it yet. Gluten doesn't become toxic until it's consumed and excreted by a virus. 
right? So when a virus feeds on gluten, even though the virus is growing and growing and growing because it's eating one of its favorite foods, the waste that's excreted will not be as toxic as the waste it excretes after consuming forms of viral fuel that are inherently toxic, like metals. Think mercury and copper, stuff like that. Gluten is still problematic though because it feeds viruses, so gluten increases the number of viral cells, which does create more of that byproduct, the waste matter that creates the inflammation in our bodies, even if it's sometimes very subtle inflammation with very subtle symptoms. But that's become so common in our society, hasn't it? Everybody's got some form of symptom, like everybody's on caffeine because they're all tired. Why do you think we're all so tired? Our bodies are trying to fight off these viruses and protect us from toxins all the time. It's exhausting. <laughs> Ask me how I know. The neurotoxins that a virus pushes out or excretes when it feeds on gluten are still neurotoxic and it does cause brain and nerve inflammation, but it can be on a smaller scale in comparison to some other forms of viral fuel that we'll talk about. And sometimes when gluten leads to only very subtle inflammation and symptoms, it's because the virus is at an earlier stage. And as the virus gets bigger, stronger, the symptoms and inflammation that will occur will worsen over time when you eat gluten. And if you haven't read Liver Rescue, which is the fourth book in the Medical Medium series, you'll learn about the liver and how it can become stagnant and sluggish as it fills up with a viral waste. And the liver is supposed to be the filter in our bodies to protect us from all these things, including viruses and their waste but it can become stagnant over time as it fills up. So if you eat a lot of gluten and there's a virus that's replicating and replicating and replicating as it eats the gluten, then this can lead to symptoms like mild fatigue, brain fog, and weight gain. Weight gain! Yeah, so that's gluten. That's one of the, it's a favorite food, one of the very favorite foods of viruses. And I can tell you that when I eat it, I can tell. When I don't eat it, I feel so much better. My waist is slimmer because bloating can be caused by viruses excreting all kinds of gas <laughs> in your gut. And I also learned, I don't think we'll touch on it in this chapter specifically, but gluten has been genetically modified, which largely causes the body not to recognize it as food and non-conventional, especially when it's grown in the USA, it's sprayed with Roundup glyphosate, which is a very dangerous chemical. And wheat is highly absorbent. I don't know if you've ever like gotten it wet but it absorbs things <laughs> and so when you spray something like glyphosate on it roundup on it it gets absorbed it doesn't go anywhere and then it's processed and we end up eating it so we're eating glyphosate and we wonder why we're sick yeah okay so that's gluten the next one on the list is eggs and this one is a big shocker for a lot of people because they've been told over and over again by many different sources that eggs are healthy but guess what they're also the perfect food for viruses they love eggs much more than they love gluten eggs themselves let me be clear eggs themselves are a non-toxic food but they're not the best food for the human body that's why there's been a lot of heart attack warnings over the years. Eggs also stimulate and perpetuate viral growth and replication on what Anthony calls a fierce level. And that's because these viruses were originally raised inside chicken eggs in the classified labs. I know, right? My jaw was on the floor when I read this. So more viral cells mean more potential for the virus to find and feed on substances in the body that are very toxic. So that includes the chemicals and fragrances, which can then in turn allow the viruses to release upgraded, more noxious forms of their neurotoxins that increase the inflammation of the brain and the nerves. So neurotoxins from a virus that's feeding on eggs aren't the most toxic or damaging of neurotoxins. They're a little 
bit more inflammatory than the neurotoxins that are excreted by a virus that was feeding on gluten because the virus consumes natural hormones and undeveloped proteins from the baby chicken, which was already foreign to the body, right? That's something I've always kind of known intuitively was that there's hormones inside dairy products. There's hormones inside eggs, hormones that were not meant to work with our body. So what is our body doing with those hormones? What is possible for our body to do with all of that stuff that doesn't work with our bodies? The genetic information is not identical. It can't be done, but it's still biological hormones. What's our body doing with it? How is it affecting our body? Knowing that it is foreign. Yeah, so just to be clear, to complete that thought here, there's a little more inflammation possible by a virus feeding on eggs than by a virus feeding on gluten because as viruses consume those hormones and proteins from a baby chicken, which are already foreign to the body, it's now toxically foreign to the body after it gets excreted from the virus. So the virus, after it eats the hormones and proteins from the eggs, makes it toxic, if that makes sense. Yeah, and those viral neurotoxins from eggs can cause the liver to become stagnant and sluggish, which means that the lymphatic system is going to become stagnant and sluggish because the lymphatic system is only as clean as the liver is. Unlike gluten, eggs are high in fat, and higher fat means thicker blood, which means more stagnant blood and less oxygen in the blood, allowing viruses to thrive. Oxygen keeps viruses more docile, and that's why I got the hyperbaric oxygen chamber, because viruses hate oxygen. <laughs> Fats are also extremely acidic, creating an acidic bloodstream, and an acidic environment will allow viruses to grow and thrive because the blood becomes thicker and more toxic as acid increases. Having more viral cells means more possibility of those viruses finding the toxic heavy metals such as mercury and other substances to feed on. Now, there's always going to be that person <laughs> that says, oh, well, my grandma is 95 years old and she eats eggs and she's fine. It's not the reality because if you talk to that grandmother, she's probably going to tell you that she's on multiple medications. She maybe has fibromyalgia, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, brain fog, memory loss, weight gain, and she's probably had those symptoms or many other symptoms for a long time. Maybe she did eat those eggs early in life with no problem to start with, but the eggs were feeding on viruses in her body over the time and symptoms developed too. People can go for years eating eggs without any symptoms or many symptoms at all. Then when the symptoms do start to develop, they don't connect the symptoms to the eggs. Behind the scenes, viruses have been slowly growing inside people's bodies from the eggs they consume, and it's these viruses that are creating their symptoms. So someone might say, well, I can eat eggs and I'm fine. I can think of several people who believe that and have told me that. Meanwhile, they go on to get diagnosed with PCOS or prostate cancer or breast cancer or endometriosis, or they have miscarriages or reproductive problems and never make the connection with the eggs. Not to mention, they're also suffering with brain and nerve inflammation from the neurotoxins that the viruses excrete when they eat eggs. Viral cells are going to steadily grow in number from the eggs they consume, and as that happens, there's a greater chance that those viral cells will find more toxic forms of viral fuel in the body, and that can have even more intense consequences for the nervous system, causing more symptoms over time. That's why you tend to see people get sicker as they get older. There's a reason for that. It's not just old age, right? Dad. My dad doesn't listen to podcasts. He listened to one podcast. This is just a fact about me. He listened to one podcast from one person one time. He didn't like it. And so he decided he didn't like podcasts. But I gave him a copy of Liver Rescue. I doubt he's read it because he thinks it's too late to make changes. Not going to worry about it, but I love him. Yeah, so that's eggs for you. Shocking, I know, for a lot of people. 
Next one is toxic heavy metals and everyday toxins. So we had three whole episodes on metals in the brain, but we haven't talked about how viruses can feast on those metals and other toxins and create problems in the brain. So let's be clear on one thing that everybody has a level of mercury in their organs, including in their brain. And mercury is what causes Alzheimer's disease. This is not something I'm making up. This is something I learned from the series of books. Both of my maternal grandparents died of Alzheimer's, meaning I know there's mercury in my family. It's passed on hereditarily. It can be in contaminated sperm, contaminated eggs. It stays in people's bodies and it gets passed on. Everything in your parents' body is somehow passed on to you. Everything. You're, you literally grow inside another human. So everything that they are, you become in some ways in your body. Not you as a person, but you as a, your body, your meat suit <laughs> becomes that, okay? Yeah, so having more virus cells in your body means you're going to have more opportunities for those virus cells to run across a small pocket of mercury that's maybe in your liver, spleen, pancreas, reproductive system, intestinal tract, heart, or brain. That's why it's so important to keep the viruses down, keep your body strong so that doesn't happen. Your body will protect you from the metals and the toxins, and there's ways that you can extract that stuff and cleanse yourself of those toxins. And it's a process. And in the original medical medium book, Anthony says that it can take about 18 months for the average person to really heal themselves. So I'm about eight months in to my process since having learned this information and started to implement it seriously. And I haven't been perfect at it, right? Not even close, but I'm making more and more changes over time with the goal of supporting my body to become the strongest it can be. Our bodies were actually designed to live a lot longer than they're living. Yeah. Say someone is very low in mercury toxicity, it doesn't mean they're not going to get a dose of mercury at some point in their life that will feed a viral colony that's in their body that's been supported by eggs. Okay. So once that viral colony consumes the mercury, the viral cells are going to excrete a powerful neurotoxin versus the milder ones that they once had when it was feeding on gluten and eggs. So the more toxic the substance is in your body, the more toxic the neurotoxin produced by a virus is going to be. And the powerful neurotoxin from a virus that feeds on mercury is unlike other neurotoxins because mercury itself is neurotoxic. So it gets processed inside a virus cell and the structure of it is changed. It's transformed into a methyl mercury. And that means it's going to be composed of smaller mercury particles that have the ability to enter every part of the body with ease and cross the blood-brain barrier with ease. It's crazy. Makes it very, very simple to do. This type of neurotoxin can then saturate the brain and cause inflammation in different areas of the brain and result in a variety of symptoms. It's worse inflammation than the viral neurotoxins from gluten and eggs, which means that the symptoms someone experiences from mercury viral neurotoxins are worse too. Why do viruses like mercury? Because it was originally used in labs to preserve viruses. Bombshell. While it was being studied and raised in classified labs, a virus would be kept alive and suspended in their present state in a mercury-based preservative. It's like a solution that they were in. And the viruses learned to adapt to mercury and use it as food. Yeah, history lesson. But of course, this is not going to be published. <laughs> and people won't know what to do with this information. It's not going to be published publicly, right? So that means we have to seek it out ourselves. And when we have an intention, God, the universe source is going to feed that intention. Yeah, we seek, we find. That's the way it works. 
Mercury is actually not the only toxic substance that will allow viral neurotoxins to become problematic. Any toxic heavy metal can suffice. Any solvent or chemical that's created for use in industry can create potent viral neurotoxins. So that includes things like plug-in air fresheners, hairspray, other hair products, which those things give me a headache. I've thrown so many of them away. So many of them contain powdered aluminum. Like check your labels of your hair products. Look for aluminum. Check your foundations. Check your makeup for metal fragrance you're just going to be surprised how much crap there is in there conventional household cleaning supplies conventional detergents fabric softeners dryer dust so the brew of laundry chemicals air fresheners perfumes and colognes that comes out of dryer vents fragrances cosmetics new toxic chemicals that are on fabrics like fungicides on clothing and furniture pesticides herbicides and gasoline fumes all of these can provide fuel for viruses to create very toxic neurotoxins that create brain inflammation that's worth noting that more viral race in the body means a more lowered immune system and that means there's going to be more possibility for viruses to reach the brain through the bloodstream so they can search for food in the brain more viral waste and the resulting lowered immune system also means more opportunities for a virus to cross into the spinal fluid and head to the brain on an alternative path. Although most viruses, if they reach the brain, are going to travel there through the bloodstream and not the spinal fluid. You could have debilitating neurological symptoms like what someone with neurological Lyme or MS experiences and still not have the virus enter your brain itself. And that's because the virus could be releasing neurotoxins from elsewhere in the body that are so potent that when neurotoxins reach and enter the brain, neuron inflammation occurs that leads to debilitating symptoms. And someone could have a larger amount of mercury in their brain and a smaller amount of viruses or viral cells because they're maybe not eating a lot of eggs or gluten or other brain betraying foods like dairy and corn that would cause the viruses to grow in number and that would mean the viruses remain small in number and they are less apt to find the mercury deposits but even if that's the case you can still experience symptoms from the mercury deposits themselves because they are neurotoxic and we learned about that a little bit in the series on metals in the brain yeah, so those are the top three things that viruses love to eat. And of course, as we've seen, there are nuances to how the viruses, viral fuel, and the neurotoxins add up and create someone's experience on an individual level. And so while mercury is a viral fuel, it's not a virus's food of choice, so it doesn't cause a virus to proliferate in large numbers. But if a virus is growing quickly because it has other fuel present, like the eggs, like the gluten, like the dairy, and the corn, the viral cells can strengthen in number enough to go and find mercury and other toxic substances to further fuel itself. That's why it's so important to cut out the eggs, cut out the gluten, cut out the dairy, cut out corn. A larger number of viral cells means there's more bandwidth to travel for the virus as it looks for more sources of food. More virus, more food is required to sustain and to grow. And that means more viral cells tend to travel deeper throughout the body if there's more of them. It's a combination of the virus growing in number from eating foods like eggs and having enough mercury and other everyday toxins in the system for the virus to feed on. Those two things lead to an abundance of potent neurotoxins and that makes for more serious symptoms and conditions. Viruses will do anything to stay alive. They're very hardy <laughs> in that way. And it helps to understand how viruses replicate in our bodies when we don't take action 
to make our bodies antiviral because they'll do anything to stay alive. They'll adapt and realign and change their replication methods just so they can survive. And the viruses today, as we've learned, are engineered and they're new to our modern day history. They were engineered and it started in the first 20 years of the 20th century. I love history. I love it when Anthony shares information about how things happened and how it got to be where it is. So prior to the early 1900s, viruses were quite docile because they were untampered with by us. And they may not have appeared docile because of the severe deficiencies and we had lack of fresh water in many areas of the world. A docile virus isn't so docile when you have a diet that has a single type of grain for two straight years or no access to fresh veggies or fruit or no clean water for drinking and bathing. And remedies like vitamin C were really rare back then. And so that's how viruses could take hold really easily in areas that were impoverished in both nutrients, fresh water, and food. So it's critical to understand that context for viruses that existed prior to the 1900s. There's a lot of different theories on how viruses replicate. And experts, you'll hear them use terms like DNA, RNA, and proteins because that makes viruses seem like they're all about genetics, right? And they purposely try to take viruses in the direction of being gene-related because that's where the funding is going. That's where the money is, guys. They try to convince us that viruses are pieces of genetic material and that our genes are involved with the virus genes and that the viruses aren't alive. They need us to believe that viruses aren't the real problems and that it's our weak genes that are the problem and that viruses are just the trigger. One of the theories out there is that viruses are attached to and live in our genes and that when you trigger the gene, you can awaken the virus. No matter the popular theory though that's happening on any given day, they're gonna keep focusing on genetics when it comes to viruses, but viruses, Hear me loud and clear. This is right here from the book. I have it highlighted, page 62. Viruses have nothing to do with genes. Viruses are separate entities, living things that we get exposed to, and then the viruses try to live the duration of their lives within our bodies. They are actual living bugs that live inside of us. And they replicate. And once they're inside of us, they grow in number and they create replicas of themselves. And there's different varieties of viruses that cause brain inflammation. The different viruses replicate differently. There's a couple of different methods. I'm gonna go over them quickly. I say a couple, there's six different methods and there are some examples. There's many different ways, but Anthony goes over six of them. First method where the virus enters a human cell and then replicates inside the human cell, the human cell explodes and then the explosion allows the virus replicas to spread. Second one is they replicate by the viral cells coming into contact with one another. They need to touch each other, which sets off a stimulating hormone within each cell involved. The stimulating hormone starts off the process for each viral cell to create multiple replicas of itself within the viral cell's membrane. As each of those membranes expands, stretches, and then snaps, more new viral cells come out. And each viral cell that is snapped open becomes a dead, toxic, viral corpse. And those corpses can form a sticky, jelly buildup in the organs that can make you sick. And once released from the old viral cells, the new viral replicas instantly go on the search for food. This type of virus feeds on human cells that have already expired and died and whatever contaminants are in those dead human cells. And when a viral cell has fed enough to mature, it seeks out another mature viral cell as a partner to start the multiplication process all over again. The third replication method is that certain viruses don't have the ability to enter a human cell or replicate on their own. So to replicate, they need fertilization. And it's a type of fertilization that occurs from another viral cell. 
even though the viruses themselves are not male or female, with this type of virus, the viral cells do fertilize each other. And so to do that, they will communicate between each other and they'll eventually find each other inside the body and join together for a fertilization process. One viral cell fertilizes the other and then the fertilized viral cell releases eggs into the bloodstream or organs. This is crazy. That's one way the mutation process happens. If two viral cells of the same virus yet different mutations join together, their offspring after the fertilization process will be different from what the parent viruses were. While the offspring viral cells will resemble the parent cells, there will be a slight mutation. That's the third way that the viruses can replicate. It depends on the virus. You know, there's so many different kinds. There's different ways they can replicate. So the fourth method that they can replicate, there's no fertilization or stimulating hormone required. Certain types of viruses attach to human cell tissue and individual viral cells release viral eggs. It happens when a viral cell matures and nears the end of its life cycle, at which point the viral cell produces eggs within itself and tries to find a human host cell into which it can inject those eggs. Gross. They're parasites, guys. Viruses are the real parasites here. These viruses can pierce and inject anywhere from a half a dozen to over 50 eggs into one human cell, and it expands that cell as the eggs hatch, exploding the human cell and releasing the hatched viral cells. Gross. It's just gross. <laughs> oh. The fifth method is when a virus of this type that replicates in the fifth method here is reaching its shelf life, it's gonna expire soon, it can replicate a newer version of itself as its old carcass and shell casing sheds away. So imagine like a snake shedding its skin, right? This is a transformational virus that replicates through cell transformation. Weird. And then the final method he lists here is when a viral cell reaches the end of maturity and will be dying soon, it releases a signal through the chemical compounds that it excretes that it's saying, hey, I'm at the end of my life. And a number of other viral cells answering the call, they cluster around the mature cell to be fertilized. Once the viral cell is fertilized, the cluster breaks up and the fertilized viral cells search for human host cells. Each fertilized viral cell injects one egg inside one human host cell and then each egg hatches inside each human host cell. This is a slow replicating type of virus. And that is why, and this is like a bombshell, like jaw drop thing that I learned from reading these books is that is why viruses are at the heart of nearly every type of cancer is a virus, but we're not going to hear that. They're looking for a cure for cancer, but they're not looking at the real causes. When you find the cause, you find the cure. So yeah, Anthony says this is not an exhaustive list. <laughs> it felt like one of, of how viruses can replicate. It's a look at some of the common examples. So we need to keep in mind that most anything to do with viral replication remains undiscovered by publicly known medical research and science because they're still debating theories amongst themselves about the basic nature of viruses, like saying they're alive, they're not, they're alive, they're not. So for the methods of viral replication that require viral cells to come into contact or fertilize each other, one single viral cell can live inside you without another viral cell waiting for your exposure to another viral cell of the same virus. For example, if someone gets exposed to one single EBV cell, that viral cell could stay dormant for two or three years until the person gets exposed to another EBV cell, at which point the virus can start replicating and creating symptoms. That said, when someone gets exposed to a virus, they're usually not exposed to only one viral cell. They're exposed to multiple cells from dozens to hundreds at a time. And here's one thing to remember is that no matter what method a virus uses to grow, the only way it can replicate is if food is present for it in the body. 
Baby viruses need fuel sources inside human cells in order to grow, which is why it's so important to keep coming back to the information from this section, what we just started this episode with, what viruses love to eat, and we have to keep reminding ourselves that we can starve the viruses if we want to stop them from replicating in our bodies. Viruses also need weakened human cells to enter, cells that are lacking in supplies. That means if a human cell is dehydrated due to caffeine, vinegar, and salt, if it doesn't have enough vitamin C, zinc, or other trace minerals inside it, then it is a susceptible, vulnerable cell the viruses can break into. On the other hand, if a human cell is strong enough, hydrated enough, and abundant enough in phytochemical compounds, antioxidants such as vitamin C, melatonin, minerals, trace minerals such as zinc, and multiple antivirus compounds from fruits, herbs, leafy greens, wild foods, like wild blueberries, my favorite, and veggies, it's much more difficult for a virus to invade that human cell. When a virus tries to break into a human cell that's healthy, it can actually give up and just start looking for a weaker cell because the process of trying to break into a healthy cell can take too long and require too much energy from the virus. It'll even ring alarms in the process that awaken the immune system to sniff out the criminal trying to enter the human cell. Our bodies are very smart, you guys. Very smart. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So millions and millions of people are walking around with undiscovered viral brain inflammation and their lives are diminished because of it. So one thing that we mentioned throughout this series was that there is such a thing as a virus itself and not its neurotoxins getting into someone's brain. And so Anthony gives uh, some a little background on the more rare and extreme cases of viral brain inflammation where a virus directly inflames the brain. And sometimes a virus can stay dormant in the brain, not causing too many problems, even though a dormant virus in the brain can still cause mild neurological symptoms because it releases pollutants as it's taken up residence in your brain. And when that dormant virus in the brain activates or when an active virus enters the brain and causes an acute infection, that's when an explosive condition or a condition that resembles a stroke can occur. There's explosive acute conditions that can occur from a combination of viral cells directly injuring brain cells while also releasing viral neurotoxins directly into a brain. So it's like a double whammy, triple whammy. When a virus enters the brain or when a dormant virus in the brain becomes activated, it can create direct inflammation in a particular particular area of the brain that causes neuron damage, myelin nerve sheath damage, that if the damage becomes visible on imaging could be diagnosed as demyelination or encephalitis. Although you have to keep in mind that diagnosis of myelin nerve sheath damage from brain imaging isn't definitive because in many cases what the doctors identify as brain lesions are actually oxidizing deposits of mercury and aluminum that have stained the nerve sheath the brain tissue, or the nervous system tissue. And most of the time, they can't see anything in the brain. Normally, viral infections of the brain are acute and severe and leaving people in the hospital for weeks diagnosed with meningitis, even if the cause of the meningitis is unknown. And he says that meningitis is actually just a term of brain inflammation from a current infection, even if no one knows precisely whether it's bacterial or viral. Even after performing a spinal tap, they may not know, and diagnosis comes down to theory and a doctor's opinion. That's why it's always very important to get multiple opinions, and for me, I got like seven opinions. (laughs) Eight opinions, at least. Spinal taps are almost always unnecessary, and they rarely offer any clues or insights into a medical problem when it comes to chronic sickness or acute sickness that becomes chronic. Spinal taps were actually adopted by the medical industry when the industry realized it could administer a spinal tap. It's 
almost always a formality versus an avenue that actually provides answers. This was so interesting to learn when I first read this. Spinal taps can actually cause unnecessary damage to the spinal cord and they're antiquated. The analysis of the spinal fluid is not advanced. The medical industry should actually stop performing spinal taps unless they learn to start testing for pertinent or relevant contaminants and viral byproduct inside the spinal fluid, which they do not. I did not know that. Like so much, so much about medical industry is thought of to be formalized and true and accurate and complete. And it is so far from that. It's just mind blowing. As a result of extreme inflammation, because of an active virus infection in the brain, patients can experience fever, severe neurological weakness, continual migraine, pressure in the head, burning pain in the head. The symptoms can vary depending on where the infection is in the brain. It's not easy to distinguish the difference between the neurological symptoms from a virus inside the brain versus symptoms from the neurotoxins that are traveling to the brain from a virus somewhere else in the body, as we discussed in the last couple of episodes. As an example, sometimes say a person can experience what feels like a fever where they have the sensation of their head burning really hot, even when a thermometer shows that they don't have a fever. And this is a case of nerves burning from the inside. It can be experienced without a virus in the brain and instead from a large degree of the toxins, neurotoxins that have gone to the brain and inflamed the brain tissue. Or the feverish without a fever symptom can occur from a virus in the brain directly injuring the nerves. It's hard to differentiate between the two. Chills without fever are a symptom of the neurotoxins effect on brain tissue as well. The feeling that the head is extremely heavy or that it's swollen, that's hard to hold up, can be symptomatic of a virus in the brain latching onto the nerves there. Or they can likewise be symptoms of viral neural toxins. Yeah, and as I've said, the autoimmune theory is false. And often what we see in someone who gets diagnosed with autoimmune disorder, as I did, and many of my friends have as well, is that our immune systems are actually overburdened and they're not attacking our bodies, they're attacking a virus, but it's really hard because our immune system is taxed by everything that we're taking in that we're not aware is actually making the problem worse. Our immune system is looking out for us. Some interesting facts that are towards the end of this chapter, your viral brain, is that the body actually reacts to vitamin B12 shots as an enemy because when it's injected into the arm or the leg and not delivered intravenously or taken orally, all kinds of problems can happen and cause brain inflammation. Our body has a safety mechanism. Anything that breaks the skin is seen as an enemy if any kind of foreign substance is left behind. Our body will build an antibody to that foreign substance. The body doesn't consider it foreign if it's delivered intravenously, so by IV, and that's why IV nutritional therapy is different from B12 shots. When B12 or any other type of nutrient or even medication enters in through the vein, the body will not consider it an enemy unless it's an outright poison. So if a B12 injection breaks the derma, travels into a muscle, and then it's released into the muscle that leaves behind B12 or any preservatives in that injection, the deeper the injection injury is, the more chance your body has of retaliating and building an antibody or allergy to it. Can you see where injecting treatments for certain viruses directly into the derma could be a problem? It could work for us, as some treatments have shown in the past, but it can also work against us depending on what is injected and what's left behind. 
So what can happen in the B12 scenario is retaliation, essentially. Anything from mild sensitivity to B12, you could have a total breakdown of the body's ability to create, process, or convert B12 to seeing B12 as an enemy, which allows for an inflammatory occurrence to happen, including inflammation of the brain. In addition to that, B12 injections lower the immune system, allowing pathogens to take advantage and increase viral neurotoxin inflammation. Someone who has had B12 injections should actually switch to oral B12 in the form of adenosylcobalamin and methylcobalamin. You want to stay away from cyanocobalamin. I'm probably butchering those names. <laughs> Intravenous IV B12 is okay, but B12 administered orally is the best anyway. I've been taking B12 orally for maybe a month now, and I'm definitely noticing a difference in my energy, so I would recommend it too, even though I'm not a doctor. I have to say that, obviously. Antibiotics delivered by injection and allergy shots is the same thing. If the needle goes deeper than the derma and enters into the muscle, there's a greater chance for the body to see the antibiotic or allergy shot as an enemy and to build antibody resistance or allergy against it. The same could happen with cosmetic injections, okay? So this is something I've been wrestling with because I've been doing Botox since I was 29 and I took a year off when I was in Amsterdam. And I've had it done a couple times this year. And I've really strongly been considering not doing it anymore because I want to detach the appearance of my skin and my body and my face to who I am. I'm not my body. I want to glow from the inside out without using any cheating. I don't know. I'm just kind of thinking out loud about it. But when I read this section in this chapter specifically, it really encouraged me to start thinking about it more. Cosmetic injections are usually just underneath the derma Cosmetic injection injuries do occur where the needle accidentally goes a little farther and ends up directly in the connective facial tissue, the main nerves, or deeper in blood vessels in the bloodstream. And when this happens, the body sees the injection substance as an enemy and can build antibody resistance or allergy to its components, such as the Botox toxin, botulinum toxin that is commonly used. The original trend was for women in their 40s and 50s to get cosmetic injections, but now, like me, (laughs) younger generations in their teens and 20s are getting the injections as well. That gives them an additional 20 to 30 years of exposure, and that means 20 to 30 extra years to build up antibodies and allergies to the injections and cosmetic fillers placing an additional load on the immune system, which weakens and lowers the immune system, allowing common everyday viruses like EBV to cause brain inflammation that much earlier in life. I think about the time of my life when I started doing those injections kind of corresponds with a lot more of other things that started happening in my life. And I won't know for sure ever, you know, just how connected it is, but it's definitely been a part of it for sure. Fact of the matter is anything, whether it's steroids, Botox, B12 injections, anything that enters the body like this has the potential to create sensitivities and conflict with other things that people are struggling with, like these viruses that we've been talking about. Our immune system is already burdened with the viruses, and many of the symptoms that we were talking about on the show are caused by viruses creating inflammation, and the immune system is struggling to keep these viruses under control on a constant basis. So treatments that require an injection from outside the body that aren't administered intravenously by, like, an IV, that's what intravenous means, (laughs) 
for those of you guys who don't know, create a complication where the body's immune system pays attention to those distractions. So your immune system is now trying to decipher the poison, decipher this foreign invader as whether it's a friend or an enemy, and then making a decision about whether the body needs to create an antibody for resistance purposes to protect the brain and its other organs. That's how smart your body is. So all these things that that we say, you know, our bodies are attacking itself, the body is actually reacting to what's being put into it. Point being, the strain on the immune system caused by these injections can trigger viruses to take advantage. Previously, the immune system might have had EBV, cytomegalovirus, all these herpes family viruses or shingles under control, but pulling the immune system's eye off the ball, so to speak, the viruses can become reactivated. <sighs> yeah, I mean, talking about the future of brain inflammation, medical communities are starting to catch on to brain inflammation. It took me a while, it took me years to get a doctor who even said that my brain was inflamed early this year, January. Yeah, but now they're acting as though it's a full and complete answer. <laughs> but the truth, as we've learned about viral cause inflammation, has prompted a lot of interest from the field of medicine. Doctors who are public figures, you might know some, know of some, are aware of medical medium's information, and they're talking about brain inflammation now, talking about its possible causes. But medical research and science have not yet discovered the underlying subtle pathogen inflammation, but public figure doctors are pretending, in most cases, that the information exists in studies, which it doesn't. The information that they've published is actually from medical medium the information on pathogen caused inflammation, but they don't cite where it came from. <laughs> they speak on behalf of the information as if they are all knowing about it and that it was in some kind of study. And that's marketing. You know, they want to preserve their credibility and they know that the majority of the population needs to know that it's in a study for them to believe it's plausible at all. Yeah, there's public figures that are in the public eye and they pretend the information is fair use and they're using it for their own devices and they don't cite the information. At the same time, they're using Anthony's information about brain inflammation. They're also leaving out critical parts of it and then they can also twist it to suit their own agenda. And we have to know this stuff because then we can protect ourselves from misinformation out there because these figures will manipulate the information found in these books. So when a public figure doctor, even a healthy hobbyist, like a blogger, makes information from medical medium public about brain inflammation but doesn't cite it at the source, it makes it look like it's been discovered. But in reality, medical research and science and medical schools are not aware of the subtle type of brain inflammation caused by viruses. Public figures out there will create the illusion then that they're standing on the platform of medical research and science by finding one study or more often it's just a theoretical research paper. It doesn't match the information that they learned from the medical medium books. So they cite one paper or study anyway and it's a decoy at that point but it's actually medical medium published information. It's important for us to accept that there's underlying subtle brain inflammation in millions of people, and it would be a colossal breakthrough in the field of medicine for them to accept it too. It would discredit decades of brain studies and literature. Anthony knows medical research and science. He knows the field of medicine. And if they detected this subtle brain inflammation, they'd have to blame it on genetics or the autoimmune theory. And that's what a lot of them are already doing. They're saying that brain inflammation is the body attacking itself because of various triggers. They say that the body is creating inflammation from the body's own immune system attacking the brain. And that's what 
Anthony means when he says that they'll twist the information. And that's really as far as the field of medicine is able to go because medicine is trapped. We're going to a place in our society where chronic sickness is going to be redefined because more than half, more than half of the world's population is going to be greatly ill with neurological conditions, most of the time with brain inflammation present. So we're going to see in the coming years an increase in people having HIV. More people are going to be struggling with a lowered immune system, allowing other viruses like EBV, shingles, and other herpes viruses to create more chronic cases of brain inflammation and so-called autoimmune disease. Medical research and science, both the publicly known and the classified, if they're steered correctly and monitored properly, can work in the favor of humanity. But when it's abused and not geared toward public safety and instead geared toward greed, they can be the downfall. And most likely it will be. I like to think positively though, and that's why I'm doing this show because people are going to find it and people are going to know. And when people know, they can do things differently. Knowledge is power when it's implemented. Yeah, so with the knowledge about why we've experienced the health challenges that have held us back in life, we gain the tools and insights to change our experience and start living our lives without the limitations of having a viral brain, no matter what battles are being waged in the medical arena, right? We can just tune that shit out, (laughs) pardon my French, and create the lives that we want from within, right? It all has to come from within. Everything that is outside of us Right? Everything that we believe is happening to us is a reflection of what's happening inside of us. Yeah, so let's wrap that up. We are finally done with a series on the viral brain chapter in Brain Saver. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've certainly enjoyed it. In the next episode, we're going to start a new conversation on your emotional brain. Yeah, that's a one that's really exciting for me too, considering you know four years ago, I considered myself a non-emotional person gonna be a series too we're gonna start a new series about the emotional brain based on the chapter in brain saver called your emotional brain we'll see what i end up titling it but it's another long chapter should be quite interesting though because especially in the world of mental health there's a lot of therapists out there who are trying to teach people you know how to stop attracting their illness how to stop thinking the way they're thinking and as I embark on my new journey in my own business to help people change the way they're thinking, I'm wanting to include this information as well because if there's someone out there who thinks they can't change the way they're thinking, there's something else that's hurting their thinking because all this stuff can change the way we think without us even knowing it and without us even granting permission, but we're still allowing it to happen in our bodies by what we don't know. So knowledge is definitely power. Really excited to start that new series in the new year. This episode's coming out the weekend of New Year's. So we'll see you in 2023. This has been Misdiagnosed. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much for tuning in to Misdiagnosed. If this show has helped you in any way, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Sharing your experience will help others who are lost in the darkness find their own way out of the science of lies. Please note that while I may go in-depth into medical topics and have acquired substantial medical knowledge, I am not a medical doctor. I'm a researcher. I'm a messenger of hope for other survivors of industrialized psychiatry. Because of how toxic psychiatric drugs are, it can be extremely dangerous, even life-threatening, to suddenly stop taking certain drugs. This is especially true for antidepressants, antipsychotics, and benzodiazepines. The longer you've taken the drug, the more dangerous withdrawal can be. 
If you want to heal your brain and soul naturally, the way it was designed to do, please seek the help of a compassionate and patient-centered physician to start the process of withdrawing from them as safely as possible. It will take time for your brain to reacclimate to life without the drugs, and there are doctors out there who will support you in your quest to save your brain. Never give up. You can heal.